It all started with that portable tape recorder I had as a kid. Uh oh. Then I started pause button editing between two VCRs. Oh my god. Oh my god. The figure's dead. The crazy thing is, then I got into radio. Mr. Announcer? Yum. Oh my god. Thank you very much. After that, I went into TV. My whole life, the tape has been rolling, which is fine by me because I always think there's a story to be told. But a word of warning from everyone around me Do not give this tape to Earl. Welcome back, everybody, to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. As you can tell, I was handed another tape in a back alley, a dark back alley, and I'm using it. Now, it is true that ninjas did try to show up and assassinate me moments after I was handed that tape, but they failed, and here I am. That's right, Puck. I'm here. So, good news. I got uh, Pfizer shot number one. All I had to do was drive across Fayetteville to get it, Sat around for 15 minutes afterward while they observed me to make sure that I wasn't going to have an allergic reaction, and then I was home free. Later that day, though, my arms started getting really sore, and I was a little fatigued. Now, by 7 o'clock that night, I was both really sore and really fatigued, and wound up having to do work stuff from home the next day because I just wasn't sure I was sharp enough to get behind the wheel of a car uh, you know, my commute to work is an hour one way. My commute back home is an hour. So that's a lot of driving, and it's a lot of driving if you're worried about whether or not uh, you need to be behind the wheel. So for about uh, 48 hours after the shot, I just felt tired more than anything. Now, judging from what I have heard from other people about shot number two, uh, I'm taking that day and the day after off of work. You know, I'm not even going to try to do work stuff from home unless it is some, you know, big damn emergency. I am just going to count on being at home flat on my butt. And uh, I will probably be eagerly watching for news of the latest robotic hijinks from the planet Mars. released the Perseverance landing video, which I'm sure everyone has seen that by now, but it is actual, you know, it's none of this uh, sequence of still images uh, taken on another planet. It was actual video shot by an off-the-shelf video camera from Earth that was added to the Perseverance rover and added to the landing hardware before launch. Now, of course, you know, there were lots of technical trade-offs. It couldn't impact the performance of the rover doing science, you know, or landing safely in any way. But that video is just amazing. It's kind of sad that they didn't get audio to go with it, but just the video is 
that's going to inspire an entire generation of engineers right there. And I am a big fan of them doing stuff like adding video cameras to these missions. Sometimes it's really just for PR purposes. Although I think in this case, you know, there was some valuable engineering data that was gathered by having full motion video cameras on board. But uh, now I want to send a GoPro to Jupiter, or maybe send one to Venus. Uh, let's just send GoPros all over the solar system, okay? That's all I'm saying. It's a good idea. Now, Perseverance's little buddy, the Ingenuity Mars Rotorcraft, Rotorcraft, yes, let me say that correctly this time. The Rotorcraft has flown. On Monday, April 19th, it lifted off from the surface of Mars, hovered for about 40 seconds, which is a pretty good feat for a small vehicle in what the instruments read as a... I believe they said the winds were between 4 and 13 miles per hour, and it managed to steady hover. Touched down safely, running its blades actually shook off some of the, some of the uh, red Martian dust from the solar panels that are also built into the blades, and more flights were planned and carried out. Now, Ingenuity was only expected to function for about a month, but keep in mind that Spirit and Opportunity were only supposed to operate for a nominal lifespan of about 90 days. Nominal. Oh, hey, Nominal Bot. Nominal Bot's back, everybody. He's, uh, he's been trundling around a little more frequently nominal. as I record my podcast. Um... Each of them stayed operational. Uh, that spirit and opportunity, that is not nominal bot. Nominal. Each of them stayed operational for years and years. Well, actually, nominal bot stayed operational for years nominal. and years. Anyway, ingenuity might turn out to be a pretty tough little bird, and who knows how long it might tag along with perseverance on its adventures. So you realize, of course, this means we have floaty robot buddies on Mars. After four successful flights... Ingenuity is now getting a mission extension that will have it traveling along with Perseverance, which is finally going to get underway, you know, getting some actual mileage on its wheels. This is like a cartoon in the making. You've got a rover robot and a plucky little helicopter robot. More like a hell yes helicopter because it has exceeded all expectations. Nominal. Yeah, you're damn straight it's nominal, buddy. Nominal. Okay, now... Have you seen or heard about this kerfuffle going on surrounding NASA giving SpaceX the only contract for a human-rated lunar landing system? Now, Jeff Bezos, who's always in the news thanks to Amazon, but also heads up a competing private spaceflight company called Blue Origin, which was in the running for providing hardware for NASA for this purpose, Bezos is claiming that NASA changed the selection parameters at a very late stage so that they pretty much favored SpaceX and only SpaceX. Elon Musk, being who he is, is taunting Bezos on Twitter about this because, you know, that's how adults are supposed to act. Or at least it's how adults acted for about the past five years, you know, in the political environment that we were in at the time. Um, Elon, just a little note, you shouldn't still be acting that way. In case you haven't gleaned this from past space news segments of this show, SpaceX is really cool, but Elon Musk is a f***ing asshole. Also, I have problems with Bezo uh, Bezos. 
<laughs> I just made him a Star Trek villain. I have problems with Bezos because we're talking about a guy who just negotiated a massive divorce settlement that would have flattened the economy of several small countries at once. But, you know, like Musk, he still has enough money to work on his own private space fleet. Blue Origin is neat, too. I'm not against the idea of a privatized spaceflight industry. Neither of these guys is an angel, however. But I don't see where our default go-to landing vehicle is this thing that keeps exploding in the sky over Boca Chica, Texas. That's our best option? Really? On what basis? It, just because the company has enough infrastructure that it allows them to rapidly build the next one that's going to explode on a sunny Texas afternoon? Is it perhaps somewhat important to note that Congress has yet to weigh in on this sole contract business? And I'm not sure that I see this sole contract award thing surviving even a single round of congressional scrutiny. Then again, if there's anything both sides of the aisle love, it's obscenely rich people. So, who knows? personal media landscape. What's Alan watching? What's Earl watching? Well, actually, the main topic of, of this show is going to be something I've been re-watching, and I haven't been, uh, haven't been doing a whole lot of watching here of late. Uh, a lot of what I've been doing is re-watching, and I don't know if that's because I'm still in, you know, give me comfort food mode or or what, you know, like we all were through 2020. Now, book-wise, I did pick up uh, Sid Meier's Memoir, and it's literally called Sid Meier's Memoir, from the creator of the Civilization game, the Civilization PC games, and quite a few other games. And I actually wasn't even going to pick this up, except that I found it on sale at the uh, Fayetteville Barnes & Noble, and... I found myself in the Fayetteville Barnes & Noble because it's right next door to Fayetteville's Petco. Okay, I have to go get cat food at least once every couple of weeks. Putting a bookstore right next to Petco, that's really, really dangerous. <clears throat> so now you know more about the layout of Fayetteville, Arkansas than you ever knew before. Now, as far as Sid Meier's memoir goes, it's interesting, but... In some places, it's kind of perfunctory. It doesn't go into all the detail that I would have wanted it to. Now, keep in mind that what I read right before this was Howard Scott Warshaw's uh, Once Upon Atari, which is a phenomenal memoir from a phenomenal video game developer. And so it could be that I'm making an unfair comparison and maybe I should have read something completely unrelated to either book in between to kind of cleanse my mental palate, so to speak. Music-wise, um, 
I I have been listening to stuff I already have. I've been listening to a uh, I've been on a Susie and the Banshees kick lately, and I could not even tell you what triggered that. <laughs> yeah, it's it Susie and the Banshees and the Shins. So it's <laughs> bands that start with S and are a certain number of letters into the alphabet. Now there's a combination for you, Susie and the Banshees and the Shins. A lot of what I've been listening to lately is podcasts. And I wanted to give a shout-out to some of my fellow podcasters. Uh, I'm in kind of a weird position. I feel like I'm mixing and producing a really well-known band and then going back to my place and cranking out my own lo-fi stuff on a four-track tape recorder. That's kind of an analogy for my relationship to podcasting right now. At the end of the day, doing my own stuff, I just keep doing what got me to this point so far. A lot of what I've been listening to for the past year to keep myself as close to sane as I ever bother to get, which is none too close, has been some of my friends doing the same. Uh, I See Robots is wrapping up the Stuck at Home show, uh, which lately has been the Trying to Get Vaccinated show. That has been this wonderful little weekly dose of hearing from someone else in kind of the same situation as me. And that show quickly racked up a ton of its own little traditions and in-jokes, like the near-weekly opening of a new action figure or or a baseball card. Uh, later, he uh, started opening baseball cards he had just acquired. Uh, visits from the Sausageitarian, sorting out a mystery involving plastic turtles with hashtags written on them, and getting calls from former Major League Baseball player Steve Balboni as he searches the Pacific Northwest for Bigfoot. And yes, the words that came out of my mouth were intended to come out of my mouth in that order. You did hear me correctly. Vic Sage has been plugging away at the Saturday Frights and Diary of an Arcade Employee podcasts in the past year, and I've been lucky enough to be invited to pitch in on some of these. Flack continues to dish out You Don't Know Flack one week and Sprite Castle the next, though I, I did catch him sneaking a new multiple sadness into the rotation a while back, which is a great little show about not-so-great cult movies. Uh, I really make no excuses or apologies that Don't Give This Tape to Earl is kind of my own take on You Don't Know Flack. And I don't think it's any surprise that Select Game takes a lot from Ferg's Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. Paul and Dan at the Half Measures podcast have been endlessly entertaining. And as much of a Kiwi file as I am, I'm kind of pre-sold on a podcast coming out of New Zealand... But also, I like getting a fresh, non-American perspective on a media landscape that sometimes seems kind of American-dominated. Now, sure, I listen to a lot of pro-podcasts as well, but I really appreciate it at a time when I couldn't just go and hang out with them. Getting to hear from my friends, getting to hear that they were okay, or sometimes a bit less than okay. thats I totally understand that. There were times in the past year I wasn't exactly okay myself. I wanted to put more of my own shows out there, but like a lot of people, I was struggling with the new abnormal normal. I'm still trying to find a place for regular podcast production in between two jobs, one of which is also podcasting, and maybe something that for the first time in many years might approach the minimum requirements of being what some of you people out there call a personal life. That's kind of uh, taking up some of my time, too. So I'm glad that everyone, from my patrons to every single one of you listening to this, has been so patient, and I hope you're all okay. I think we're almost out of this. So, 
Now let's talk about what we came to talk about. I remember hearing about Babylon 5 was months before it ever aired, um, sometime in 1992, and I am almost certain that I heard about it first from my friend Robert Parson. He was either on CompuServe or Genie, which was uh, GE's uh, CompuServe AOL-style service, which is where J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, was actively talking about the show and talking about what his hopes for it were and what he hoped to achieve. Now, although you have showrunners and writers and actors you know, on Twitter or on other social media all the time now, this was a first in, uh, you know, between 1991 and 93. This was a first in that you not only had the, the creator and producer of a show interacting with fans, but he was interacting with them before the show was there for them to judge for themselves. That's right, Puck. I'm getting to that part. So, there's kind of a dangerously razor-thin line between... You know, hey, I'm interacting with the future producer of a TV show. And, hey, this show is vaporware. And that's kind of something that I think is is even more of a concern today than it was back then. He was working on a show. That show was going, you know, short of some sort of catastrophe behind the scenes. That show was going to make it to air. Now you think about it in terms of, like, Indiegogo and Kickstarter and, and fan films. Think of it in terms of, say, Axanar. Now, there, you know, there's a... <laughs> that's kind of a worst-case scenario. But, yeah, think of it in terms of, like, Axanar, where someone's like, yes, we're, we're raising millions of dollars. This is going to be this awesome thing. And they raise millions of dollars, and this awesome thing never shows up. Fortunately, Straczynski had uh, more credibility than a used car salesman or a used prop salesman, as the case may be. And he, you know, was talking about things that were happening. But I remember thinking at the time, it's like, boy, is, is this going to be embarrassing if this show never comes out or what? Um, that was not a problem. Now, at the time, I was a... Going into 1993, you have to keep in mind, we were starting Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Star Trek The Next Generation was riding high. Um, I was a mega Trekkie at the time. And I was, I was also a very much a an ardent Doctor Who fan, even though Doctor Who had been off the air for a few years at that point. You had the New Adventures and Missing Adventures novels from Virgin Publishing, and there were... Uh, 
I don't, I, I don't even know how to describe these anymore. They weren't fan films, although they kind of were. But the way British copyright law works, you had production companies that were entirely staffed by fans, uh, putting actors who were fans in front of cameras operated by fans, um, and working from a script that was written by fans. But... Creatures from Doctor Who, such as Sontarans and Draconians and a few others that were written by outside writers and not written by producers under BBC contract, those outside writers retained the rights to those characters. And so you still had this steady flow of Doctor Who content happening in 1993 it just didn't have the doctor in it and this, uh, quite a few of these people who were doing these went on to work on proper doctor who at some point when it was revived in the 21st century so you're talking about people like nicholas briggs mark gatiss um that sort of thing in fact the the character of kate stewart who is now the head of unit uh, the daughter of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. That character originated in one of these fan-made productions. But the thing is, since they the only elements they were using were elements that they had properly paid these outside writers for without having to get the BBC's permission to use the Doctor or the TARDIS or any other elements, they were making stories that were just about Sontarans or just about Draconians. And that way they didn't have to get the BBC's permission to put these things out there. Um, so again, Doctor Who was dead and alive, still shuffling about <laughs> and moving at the same time. So my loyalties at the time that Babylon 5 was being talked about as a future production was to Star Trek and Doctor Who. And so while I was intrigued that someone was going to try something different from either of those and you know i was game to watch it i was just kind of like um okay well let's let's see a show which in february of 1993 you could um the first satellite feed was in actually let me let me check this here I have actually put together a page so you can see some of the inside contents. Yes, the first satellite feed for the two-hour movie of Babylon 5 was on February 13th, 2003. It was on Telstar 301, transponder to vertical, stereo audio at 5.8 and 6.2, the mono mix at 6.8 on the satellite. Um, I is actually looking at the original sheet from Warner Brothers Domestic Television, giving the satellite feed information there. So, February of 1993, we all finally got to see Babylon 5. Unless you were trying to watch it on KPBI, which was the local Fox station for the Fort Smith, Arkansas area. I... KPBI was not yet on the local cable system. And so I had to tune it in on a black and white TV that was not connected to cable. It was antenna only. It was actually a black and white TV that, if I remember, um, 
if I remember correctly, I kept around solely as a background display because at the time, speaking of fan films, Jump Cut City was still very much a thing. Which means that, it, you know, and I keep promising that at some point there will be the definitive Don't Give This Tape to Earl podcast about Jump Cut City. It, it's... It is something that is being worked on in the background, and someday we will at last talk about Fitty Givers. But today is not that day. The picture and sound quality were so terrible, I couldn't exactly tell what it was I had seen. All I knew was that the station's call letters were on display in a corner of the screen in this obnoxiously large font that looked like it was generated by an Atari 400. (laughs) So the obvious solution to this problem was to go to work for that station and see if they still had the tapes. And that's exactly what happened, although I'm, I'm pretty sure that by the time I went to work there, uh, later in 1993, in the spring of 1993, I'm I'm fairly certain that by that point I had forgotten Babylon 5 altogether because there was no series that followed the the pilot not for almost a year and we'll get into that in a moment um so I went to work for KPBI and I did in fact find they had they had missed the satellite feed and so they had two three-quarter, two hour-long three-quarter-inch tapes, one for each hour of the movie, with national commercials in it and with blank spots for local commercials, that had had to be shipped to the station. So, on one of my long weekend shifts, because I had long weekend shifts, I made a VHS dub of the pilot movie of Babylon 5, knocked the commercials out, took that VHS home to watch after hours, and now that I could see it and hear it, I thought there was some potential there. This was not the best introduction I've ever had to a television series that I ended up liking, okay? I really liked kind of the noir lighting that they were going for. Um... One of the reasons that I liked it was not just atmospheric. I suspected that this show had a much lower budget than the Star Trek series that were on at the same time. And I had a feeling that the lighting was probably, um, to use to, to coin a phrase that may or may not have been used in in a Star Trek series at some point, it, it covered a multitude of sins. It covered some rough edges. It covered some of the, you know, some of the screw holes, some of the sawdust, some of the cheapness. Now, I did like the cast, especially Michael O'Hare and Andreas Katsoulis. Andreas had already been on Star Trek The Next Generation a couple of times as um, a Romulan commander named Tomalok, who was one of the very few um, real recurring villains that Star Trek The Next Generation had. I mean, outside of Q. Q, of course, was kind of the big feature on the landscape. 
but as far as an individual character where that individual came back time and again to menace Captain Picard and crew, there were very few outside of Q. And uh, Tomalak was one of those very few, and so he'd already made an impression on me in that role. Michael O'Hare as Commander Sinclair, um, I, I really liked. You could tell the guy was a very good actor and very thoughtful. You could tell that he was making some deliberate choices with his performance that did not include, you know, the maximum amount of stagey fireworks, and I really appreciated that. There was something kind of naturalistic to his performance. Now, one other thing that I noticed almost immediately, you know, that was very different from the Star Trek stuff that I was watching, but perhaps not a million miles away from the Doctor Who content that was still out there, was that the music was very much a deviation from the orchestral norm that had been established on the Star Trek shows that had, you know, a gigantic, a rel you know, comparatively speaking, a gigantic budget for music. And I couldn't tell if it was a really good idea, a really wise decision to go almost 180 degrees opposite and have kind of these rock elements in the score, or if it was a big misstep. The more I rewatched the pilot, which I did several times, especially with the news that a series was forthcoming, and especially with the foreknowledge that the series was going to be something that told a bigger story, you know, where breadcrumbs and hints were going to be dropped along the way, which is very, very new for American sci-fi TV and live action. I rewatched it quite a few times to see if I could pick up on those breadcrumbs, which, you know, now seems incredibly naive because there are so many things that are not there in the pilot that the significance of them being in the pilot um, only really only shows up much, much later. I kind of got to like the music the more I heard of it, and I was a bit disappointed at first to find that Stuart Copeland, formerly of the police, who did the music for the pilot, um, did not make the jump to the series, and that they went with something more traditionally orchestral, but yet simultaneously kind of electronic in feel. That being said, I was ready for Babylon 5 to continue. I wanted to see what this was about. I liked the cast that I saw in the pilot. <laughs> it's a pity that half of them disappeared between then and the series. But, you know, that's, um, that's, a, that's a thing that happens. Babylon 5, I also decided I was going to cover in the logbook, which at the time was a series of text files handed around from bulletin board system to bulletin board system back in the dial-up days. And, you know, once I had this first fledgling episode guide for a non-Star Trek series sitting there in the mix, that opened the door for guides to Red Dwarf, and Doctor Who, and countless others. Uh, you go to the logbook.com now and go to the episode guide section there, there are a lot of shows 
<laughs> being covered. Probably not as thoroughly as they deserve because the way things have turned out, I'm kind of the sole writer now. Anyway, it was in the wake of the airing of the pilot movie and before the series came about that a little thing called the Binder of Babylon started to take shape. Now, I should point out something about Babylon 5 and how the station I was working at came to be carrying it. Babylon 5 was a part of sort of an ad hoc network called the Primetime Entertainment Network, or P10, which was a joint venture between Warner Brothers Domestic Television and Chris Craft Television, which was a station group owned by, yes, Chris Craft, the company that makes boats and other fiberglass things. Y you know, diversify in a sensible direction. Fiberglass? Boats? Television? Why not? P10 also had um, other shows. Obviously, it wasn't just Babylon 5. And it was those shows that the uh, the owner and manager of KPBI, our, our little under-budgeted, low-powered Fox station, it was for those other shows that Bill bought P10. Now, the funny thing is, what he what he really bought into P10 for, because P10 was aimed at Fox stations, which you have to keep in mind, at the time, Fox was only programming something like three nights a week. This was before Fox had football. This was before Fox had any resemblance to a real network. So bear that in mind. The, the Fox stations had open nights that still needed programming, and the idea behind P10, the sales pitch behind P10, was that, hey, Warner Brothers is going to put all of its resources toward making, you know, this network quality programming for, you know, the nights that your network is not programming. Sorry, I just had to dislodge 16 pounds of black cat from my shoulder, who suddenly wound up there unannounced like a shadow ship. Um... Bill hated Babylon 5. What he bought into P10 for was a miniseries called The Wild West, which was a documentary miniseries also produced by Douglas Netter, who was kind of the the money producer behind Babylon 5, as opposed to the creative producer. And there was also a documentary miniseries called The History of Rock and Roll, and those were some of the first offerings out of the gate on P10. That's... That's what Bill bought into that for. Uh, he did not like any... <laughs> this is so funny in hindsight. He did not like any of the shows that went on from week to week. He just wanted these miniseries that were over and done with in about eight weeks. But, you know, then he got stuck with Kung Fu The Legend Continues and Time Tracks and eventually Babylon 5, and <laughs> he despised all of these shows with a passion. He did not like sci-fi. He didn't really seem to like anything with any sort of mystical element. So, you know, there went the Kung Fu sequel series. He hated everything on P10, and yet we were stuck with it. I am, I'm convinced that if he could have gotten out from under that contract, he would have done it 
as soon as possible. As a result, anything to do with Babylon 5, or all of these other shows, was any pile of paperwork that was waiting to be thrown out. I started saving it. And we're talking about a lot of stuff. We're talking about promo material, synopses, uh, the aforementioned satellite feed schedule sheet, a ton of 8x10 black and white glossy photos, TV guide ad slicks, and... At some point, I put together a three-ring binder of all of it and just started keeping everything that showed up. Um, one of the oddest bits of promo material, I was talking before about Stuart Copeland's music, his theme music for the pilot movie. One of the oddest things that I found in the promo material that was about to be thrown out was an open reel tape of the Stuart Copeland theme song. Uh, why did they send this? Did anyone use this? Babylon 5 in just a moment after this word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as Fangirlish.com and PopCultureRetroRama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at NerdyBlogging.WordPress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of TheLogbook.com and its podcasts. So, as you've probably guessed by now, I just started keeping everything Babylon 5 related that came in once the station had no use for it because I realized this was kind of a unique opportunity. This was not material that made its way into the hands of fans. This was the raw material that got sent out to magazines like Starlog, and here I was accumulating a ton of it. The pilot movie did rate high enough that a series, you know, the series was promised if a certain ratings threshold was met, and that was met, but then Warner Brothers um, kind of jerked Straczynski around and started convening focus groups and talking about, oh, you know, we need some, we need some changes made to the show before it comes back as a series, which it finally did in January of 1994. 
Now, I was not on CompuServe. I was not on Genie. I was not on AOL. I was still in the bulletin board system dial-up um, ecosystem there. I, I think I had some news group access via FidoNet, which was a, a thing that was just kind of starting to blur the line between the BBS world and this thing called the Internet that we were, you know, hearing so much about as being, you know, something that's going to change the future. Oh, if I'd only known. Anyway, as I was not in these fan conversations with J. Michael Straczynski, I was completely unaware of the number of changes that were coming down the pike on this show that you know, I was already pretty sure that I was going to like. The casting changes were pretty significant. We lost Tamlin Tomita and Johnny Seca, uh, the latter of whom was... Yeah, I really liked him. I believe he was... Um, I believe he was born in South Africa, and he had this very, very interesting look and this fantastic accent that I really enjoyed hearing. And I was really disappointed to to lose him. Tamlin Tomita, I'm not so sure. Looking back at the pilot now, there seems to be um, a little bit of phoning it in, maybe? And I remember after she was cut loose and, you know, found out that she was not going to be part of the series, she had some uh, less than complimentary things to say about Babylon 5 in particular and sci-fi in general, which makes it really funny that... Uh, you know, just a few years later, she's on The Burning Zone on UPN, and then, you know, a couple of decades later, she's on Star Trek Picard. Okay, Tamlin. I'm, uh, I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt for having changed her mind. Now, the Season 1 promo stuff that Warner Brothers started throwing at the stations was lavish. Big, full-color posters... Every affiliate station was sent a screen-used copy of the Universe Today newspaper. This was a newspaper that characters were seen reading in the background, and you got one. You wound up with one that had been printed up for use on the show. There were tons of photos, again, tons of slides. Every episode had a synopsis. The synopses began getting longer as the show began growing in detail and complexity. And this was the point where you realized that, as a fan, you were kind of sacrificing something to go pro and work in television. Every episode of Babylon 5 was spoiled for me. Every episode between the beginning of Season 1 to the end of Season 4 was spoiled sometimes weeks in advance. Now, this is a hell of a show, <laughs> for that to happen, but, you know, I just kind of rolled with it. In the end, I liked the casting changes, I liked the people who were new to the show, and grew to like them very well, very quickly, and although I was still a little bummed about losing Johnny Seca, I certainly did not need my arm twisted to accept Claudia Christian in place of Tamlin Tomita. But that was nothing compared to the casting changes yet to come, because in the summer of 1994, Michael O'Hare, uh, it was announced by J. Michael Straczynski, 
that Michael O'Hare was being replaced. And his character and his character's search for you know, the answer to a certain mystery in his past that was baked into the recipe of the show, I, I thought it was a really bad idea for Michael O'Hare and his character to vanish. It was announced later that Michael O'Hare was being replaced with Bruce Boxleitner, who's been, you know, lightening all of our boxes for so many years. And bless him for that. I liked Bruce as Tron. I liked him as Scarecrow. I was really unsure about him taking over as the lead of Babylon 5. I, um, I may have made a couple of cracks about Captain Tron when this announcement was first made. But it turned out it wasn't bad. It, it's kind of funny, though, that if you think about it, Bruce Boxleitner's, you know, cult classic career highlights always involve computer graphics happening around him. That's just an odd grace note for one's career to have. The story ramped up and began tightening and in season two, by this point in season three, it was almost exhausting. And this was around the point where you finally had merchandise start to appear. You know, there were magazine articles, and Babylon 5 eventually got its own magazine, although I believe that was originating in the UK. There were original novels, which we'll, I'll discuss a little bit later, and there were soundtrack CDs. The first soundtrack CDs happened, and I remember them being, you know, these kind of long, unbroken assemblages of music where you could just listen to the whole thing for an hour, and there were not discrete tracks or discrete cues. It's a good thing that we had original novels and that we had soundtracks and so on, because the end of Season 2 was also when P-10 began this completely, utterly bizarre phenomenon of withholding the last four or five episodes of the season until the fall. I distinctly remember that the UK got to see episodes 19 through 22 of season 2 months before the US did. And as a result, you had to deal with... And by this point, you know, I was on the internet. I'm pretty sure at this point that I had a uh, a Juno address. <laughs> Remember Juno? Um, but, yeah, at this point you had to deal with um, people from the UK spoiling the show for you, because the synopsis hadn't been sent out to the stations in the US yet. And furthermore, you know, there were people in the UK who had multi-standard VCRs who were sending copies back to the US and so you'd have you know it if you were if you had friends who had connections and they were serious fans and they'd be like oh hey I've got a VHS the last few episodes of Babylon 5 and there was kind of a sense that you know this probably was the last few episodes because otherwise why hang on to them like that there was something similar in season 1 now that I think of it where you had this long gap between um, the next to last episode of the season and the last episode of season one, because that last episode got followed up on so heavily by the season two premiere that introduced Bruce Boxleitner. Um, there was no transition from Michael O'Hare to Bruce Boxleitner. It was just 
oh, here's gone. Here's Bruce. And I suppose they held on to that last episode to kind of massage that non-transition as best they could. Of course, the U.S. did finally get those last few episodes of Season 2 right before the beginning of Season 3. So, we have uh, Season 1 starting in 94, Season 2 running from the fall of 94 through early 95, and then those last few episodes in the fall of 95 before Season 3 properly comes in and runs from fall of 95 through spring of 96. Now, if you have been listening to this podcast for any length of time, uh, you remember what happened in 96, specifically April of 96. Uh, the town I was living and working in, Fort Smith, Arkansas, was hit by a tornado. That um, ground zero of the destruction from that was literally a block away from where I lived, a block away from my apartment. Um, and my apartment was at the opposite end of the same block as the TV station, which um, I'm st I still don't think that was the best decision ever. But anyway, so there were, there were some interruptions in how much attention I was paying to the show. It all becomes a little bit of a blur. I remember the... Um, the Season 4 promo kit, when it first arrived in late 96, had these fantastic posters that had the cast looking upward. And they were kind of surrounded by this circular contrail that was being left behind a white star. That was a great poster. Um, had a lot of friends who wanted that, and as a result, I had a lot of friends. Um, the Season 4 resolution of the big Season 3 cliffhanger as well as the end of the Shadow War, were kind of... This was where getting the synopses ahead of time, the story summaries, was really kind of a major bummer, because I remember reading the the two-page story synopsis for Into the Fire, and I'm like, okay, I'm sure they're leaving something out here, and I'm sure there's some strategic story reason that they're doing that. But no, uh, you know, I watched it, and it was pretty much what was summarized very faithfully on those pages. I wasn't necessarily disappointed with it. It wasn't what I expected by a long shot. Now, early in 1997, so we're talking about when Season 4 was on, I had an emergency surgery that didn't go great. And so to this day, there is a whole stretch of the storyline about Franklin and Marcus going to Mars that I barely remember. I have to go back and rewatch those episodes because I don't remember them well, either because I watched them in this super sedated days in the hospital, or I had to catch up with them later um, by pulling the tapes at the, at the TV station when I went back to work and you know making VHS copies for myself to watch at home in my spare time. Uh, I have similar gaps, by the way, um, in Season 3 of Star Trek Voyager and Season 5 of Deep Space Nine. Uh, there were fairly recent episodes of Mission Log <laughs> that I was editing 
where I'm listening to John and Norman talk about, you know, episodes from the latter part of season five of DS9. And I'm sitting here thinking, I do not remember this episode at all. Now, I remember in season four, the last five episodes of the season were held back. So again, they were doing this thing where, you know, the last episodes were being scheduled later to lead into the next season. But at the time, we didn't know if there was going to be a next season. Season four had been structured so that in case the show did not get renewed, which at the point was very uncertain, Straczynski would have gotten to say all the things he wanted to say. And as it so happens, in the summer break in 1997, um, right at the end of July, right at the beginning of August, I moved from Arkansas to Wisconsin to start working at WACY in Green Bay in pretty much the same, well, not really the same capacity. I was a promotions writer-producer at WACY, so I was focusing solely on promos and not on producing commercials. Now, I've talked previously about how we kind of reinvented WACY from being a UPN affiliate to being Northeast Wisconsin's own little homegrown sci-fi channel with all of this syndicated stuff that was popping up at the time. Now, I remember as part of that, I wanted to include those last few episodes of Season 4 of Babylon 5 because it was now known by the time that I got up there that TNT, cable channel, would be rescuing Babylon 5 and producing the fifth season, as well as a couple of TV movies. Now, going to the station management and saying we should put these last five episodes of Babylon 5 in, you know, schedule them in prime time, that was a bit of a fight. I really had to do some convincing of the station management to actually make that happen. And not least of which is because, you know, their knee-jerk response to it was, you know, oh, so, you know, we're providing free promo time for, uh, you know, for Ted Turner? No, that's that's not why we're running these things in prime time. I wanted to run them in prime time because this sci-fi format that we were doing was very new, and I wanted to build some audience goodwill instead of, you know, saying, okay, this is only going to be for certain sci-fi. It's going to be like, no, this is... We're doing all the sci-fi. We're showing you all your favorites. Even this one that only has five episodes left before it jumps to cable. In a way, I was... Um, there's something that I call Livingston's Law, which I've... Uh, yeah, that's a name I came up with. I... Um, after I came back from Wisconsin to Arkansas and wound up working at a an ABC station where I was promoting newscasts primarily, uh, my boss at that station, John Livingston, told me that the pro promo producer is advocating for the audience's interest. And that's what I was doing without even realizing that that was what I was doing at WACY. Prime Time Inflation begins Wednesday at 7 on UPN 32. 
Most cops rely on good instincts, but you could say this one has an advantage. The Sentinel at 7 o'clock. At 8, the crew embarks on their most dangerous journeys yet on Star Trek Voyager. You've been waiting for months to find out who will win and who will dearly survive. Discover the answers on Babylon 5 at 9 o'clock. The primetime invasion begins Wednesday at 7 on UPN 32. As you can tell from that audio from a promo spot that was aired in the fall of 97, just before Babylon 5 jumped to TNT in January 1998, I won that particular battle with the station management and got them to go ahead and put those last five episodes in prime time. And we promoted it as such, with the understanding that after Babylon 5 was done as a broadcast show, we would be slotting in reruns of Deep Space Nine, or a, a rerun of the most recent episode of Deep Space Nine in that slot. So, effectively, Deep Space Nine premiered on Sunday nights on our station, and then the following Tuesday or whatever it was, um, once Babylon 5's run was up, that most recent episode of Deep Space Nine would get a second run on our station, and so you had two chances to catch it. When the first Babylon 5 TV movie in the beginning aired on TNT and then season 5 premiered early in 1998, my relationship to the show was more relaxed. Now, on the one hand, uh, things stopped showing up for the binder of Babylon because I no longer had access to promo materials because it was not syndicated to stations any longer. Now, that being said, I still took a very keen interest in how TNT promoted it, and I thought their initial promos that were, you know, very, very much introducing a new audience to characters who had been around for years for, you know, us geeks who had been following Babylon 5 from the beginning, but who were literally alien <laughs> to this new audience, I thought those promos were really, really cool. And so I uh, I definitely, you know, kind of tipped my hat to whoever devised those promos at TNT. Very, very nicely done. Very nicely done. Now, the show came to an end after that one season, the fifth season, on TNT. And for my money, I think that is still the best series ender that any sci-fi show has managed since Blake 7. I think that is the closest that a sci-fi series has come to a satisfying end that resembles the way that MASH stuck the landing for wartime drama, you know, for a different genre. Uh, I think Sleeping in Light really is the goodbye, farewell, and amen of science fiction. And you look back at that in context now, that we have had, you know, enormous controversy over season enders in sci-fi and fantasy since then. Game of Thrones... People are still going off about that. People are still going off about the endings of Battlestar Galactica, the new Battlestar Galactica, mind you, and Lost. All these years later, 
and it's very much a it very it splits those fandoms in the extreme and i think about you know how quietly sleeping in light brought babylon fire to a close because you know there are no despite the promos that tnt put together for it that had all sorts of exploding ships in it <laughs> that did not happen in that episode they were just showing old clips it's a show where no battles happen not one laser is fired there's one big explosion at the end but it's about the characters it's about their relationship to one another and it's about them having to bring their relationship to one of their number to a resolution because that character is no longer going to be with us i'm being kind of vague there just in case you were watching the show on hbo max and have not reached the end i'm trying to preserve that for you and not spoil it for you i really J. Michael Straczynski has said that he what he wanted fans to get from that last episode was a feeling that all the time that they had invested in Babylon 5 was time well spent. And that is exactly the feeling that I got from it. Now at this point we're talking late 1998. Um, there was even more merchandise, including CDs that included every note of music from a specific episode. These were from Christopher Frankie's label, Sonic Images. And there was also a, a, a sadly very brief series of six-inch tall action figures from Exclusive Premiere. Now, these figures, despite being taller, you would think, okay, so they're going to have more articulation and more detail than, say, your Kenner Star Wars figures of old. Um... Not really. They could just as easily have been three and three quarter inch figures, and that would have been great. Uh, in fact, I would love to see some smaller figures for Babylon 5, and I would like to see a line that encompasses more of the characters. So, uh, Super 7, if you're listening out there, um, I have ideas. I literally have lists of characters that I would like to see become action figures. Give me a shout. Now, somewhat frustratingly at this point in the story of Babylon 5, you know, there are more TV movies to come, or, or at least one more. There was at least one sequel series to come that was already approved by TNT. Unfortunately, it became kind of a victim of the law of diminishing returns. The sequel series on TNT that didn't air until the summer of 1999, by which point it had already been cancelled because of behind-the-scenes skullduggery going on between TNT and J. Michael Straczynski. It featured a fascinating batch of characters in a story that I had kind of seen before. It's, you know, you have a set amount of time to search the universe for the cure to something that is going to wipe out all life on Earth. Only this time it doesn't involve the Gamelons or Starsha of Iskandar. It involves the Drak Plague. So, if you didn't get that reference, basically, kind of the same story had already been done 
by a 70s anime called Space Battleship Yamato, which was dubbed and lightly rewritten for the Western world as Star Blazers. Now, that being said, there was no guarantee that it was going to exactly follow that. And in fact, Straczynski has even said that the plague plotline might have been tied off before the show had run its course because there was another story to tell. That's kind of fascinating. I kind of wish I had gotten to see that and sort of alleviate some of my cynicism there. I will say this one other thing about Crusade. I am the one guy who loved the music for that show. It's so idiosyncratic and unexpected and very different from Babylon 5. Um, I actually interviewed the composer, Evan Chen, and maintained a friendship with him for several years because, you know, I made known at the outset that I liked what he was doing. And he seemed awfully appreciative of that. Now, in conversations later, you know, he revealed some stuff that I was not aware of from Usenet conversations and so on, that there was an element of racism that was coming into some people's assessment of his music, and I've... I I haven't got time for that. I just I, I don't mean I don't mean there's no point in spending time talking about it. I mean I haven't got time for that kind of mindset. I think Evan Chen stuck his toe in and held a door open that got kicked open later by composers like Bear McCreary, who was able to you know, when Barry McCreary took over the music for Battlestar Galactica after the the pilot miniseries, he began weaving, like, every possible Earth culture into this multi-ethnic stew that was, at the same time, very listenable. I'm of the opinion that Evan Chen was doing that in 1999, before the revival of Battlestar Galactica was in development. But because it wasn't exactly the same as Christopher Frankie... Uh, people were all over him, and that that disappoints me. Babylon 5 fandom tends to be very positive. That's one occasion where I felt that there was a side of it that's just as toxic as Star Trek and Star Wars and Doctor Who fandom that we have now in the 21st century. So every fandom has, you know, at least one moment where it fails to live up to the material that it's a fan of. The reason Crusade got cancelled was that TNT wanted to reformat the show to make it more compatible with the wrestling programming that they had adjacent to it on the schedule. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski refused and basically walked away from any chance of getting the show made. And while I regret that we did not get to see him tell the story that he intended to tell, I think he made the right call. I think lobotomizing Crusade would have been <clears throat> not a good move, because Babylon 5 was such a smart and soulful show that it, for it to have a follow-up that did not live up to that would have been more disappointing than a follow-up that got cancelled at 13 episodes in. 
In 2001, there was a TV movie on the Sci-Fi Channel called Babylon 5, The Legend of the Rangers. And again, this was intended to be the pilot for a series, but this time, something was kind of off. I, I wasn't that crazy about the story that was shaping up. You had another all-powerful ancient enemy from the distant past, only this time, instead of the shadows, it was called the Hand. Um, which certainly could have make, made for some um, some interesting Warner Brothers corporate synergy with the whole talk to the hand thing. But otherwise, no, no, I'm sorry. And the phrase, we live for the one, we die for the one, was used so often you could have made a drinking game out of it that would have actually killed people's livers. In 2007, there was a one-off direct-DVD movie release called Babylon 5 The Lost Tales, which was kind of a promising start on something new. It, it was shaping up to be kind of Twilight Zone in the Babylon 5 universe. So you have ongoing characters, locations, and situations, but these little one-off stories that, you know, may happen after the series proper, they may happen during the series proper. But... At this point, having been through Crusade, having been through Legend of the Rangers, at a, at a gut level, I knew not to expect anything more from The Lost Tales after that first release. And uh, sadly, I was right. Which is so disappointing, because you think about it, The Lost Tales could have circled around and finished off Crusade. But it didn't. The DVDs started showing up at this point as well, DVDs of Babylon 5 proper, the, you know, the five seasons, and eventually the various TV movies, and it was nice to have them, but they looked terrible. It was well known that the show had been shot in widescreen, but the directors had favored a 4 by 3 aspect ratio, so anything that was happening in the extreme areas of the widescreen was not story essential however it was it was filmed because everyone involved with the production of the show knew that HD was coming and they were trying to future proof it and the problem with the DVDs is the special effects which includes not just outside shots of the space station and the ships but any indoor shot where there was something added by visual effects, whether it was a single gunshot or a view out of a window, a view through a cockpit, um, a virtual set, a virtual creature that was entirely CGI, which, you know, this was the first show to really go there. <clears throat> All of those things, any shot with any of those elements that was not accomplished entirely in camera was suddenly fuzzy and indistinct because what they had done was those shots had been finished for broadcast in the 4-3 aspect ratio, the, the non-widescreen aspect ratio, because the original broadcast was not 16 by 9. And so I think there was a feeling that if the show was going to be released in a widescreen format later, the effects would be redone that there would be money for that, but there wasn't. And so what they did was they zoomed in on the 4-3 finished footage 
which rendered it extremely fuzzy and it just looked like soft cream crap. It, it was terrible. It was so terrible. And for the longest time, the quality of the DVDs, and especially the quality of those, you know, often very pivotal scenes on the DVDs, made it really hard to convince anyone who hadn't watched Babylon 5 the first time around in broadcast, in syndication. Made it nearly impossible to talk them into watching it now, because now it looked worse than it had ever looked before. That brings us to this year. Earlier this year, in 2021, the streaming service HBO Max brought all five seasons to Babylon 5 to its streaming service. And you have to keep in mind, in recent years, Babylon 5 had shown up on Amazon Prime. It had gotten another run on broadcast thanks to um, what's MGM's little... Uh, retro sci-fi network, Comet, Comet TV, um, which frequently shows up not as a primary affiliation, but as a sub-channel on, you know, that's being carried by a major network affiliate. So, you know, Comet would be like channel number 0.2 or 0.3. But Comet and Amazon Prime used those DVD transfers that looked terrible. But HBO Max did something different. They, and I've read several articles that actually kind of have differing takes on what they did, but what it seems like they did was they went back to the original film negatives for the footage that was purely on film. But for anything with CGI or with effects in it, they upscaled the 4.3 broadcast masters. So what they've done is they have finally made the show look good again, but your Faustian trade-off is that this show that was shot in 16x9 to future-proof it is once again in 4.3, which basically means it looks like it did on first broadcast. The show finally looks the way I remember seeing it and falling in love with it when it first aired, and that is fantastic. I have seen people on social media talking about watching it again for the first time, now that it is actually watchable again. You know, think about it. How much money was left on the table and how much value was robbed from Babylon 5 as an intellectual property, as an IP how much money did it cost directors and writers and actors who get residuals from it by letting those DVDs look like crap? So, what does the future hold for Babylon 5? Okay, uh, let me answer this in a surprising way. I'm kind of hoping maybe, maybe nothing. Too many cast members are gone. Babylon 5, there's, there's kind of a joke that there is a Babylon curse because so many members of the cast have died. We've lost Richard Biggs. We've lost Jerry Doyle. We've lost Michael O'Hare. We've lost Mira Furlan. We've lost Johnny Secca and his fantastic accent. We've lost Stephen First. We've lost Andreas Katsoulis. Uh, 
We've lost Jeff Conaway. We've even lost the guy who played Zathras, as well as Zathras's brother, Zathras. So many of these characters were singular performances from those actors. You cannot just recast them. Because many of them were stage trained and they had amazing voices. Andreas Katsoulis had the most amazing voice. And I have never heard anyone who could pull off an even remotely convincing impression of that voice. Babylon 5 would be great in audio form for someone like Big Finish, except that again, those voices have been silenced. So, I think the five seasons, now that they don't look like crap, should be allowed to stand as a singular phenomenon. Uh, hopefully the movies that were made by and aired on TNT will get the same remastering TLC. But other than that, let it stand. Let it stand as the achievement that it is. And what is that achievement? What does Babylon 5 mean to me? There was a show, a documentary series on PBS several years ago called Pioneers of Television. And they did one of their first episodes on American TV sci-fi, specifically early American TV sci-fi. Pioneers of Television posited that the three pillars of American TV science fiction were the Twilight Zone, Star Trek, and... Lost in Space? Really? I would argue strongly that you could give Lost in Space's slot to Babylon 5. It will not slight Billy Moomy in any way to make that swap out. Lost in Space has not had the genre-changing impact that Babylon 5 had. You may have more people who know catchphrases from Lost in Space than people who know catchphrases from Babylon 5, but Babylon 5 brought story arcs and serialization to sci-fi and changed the landscape permanently. It made it okay for the writers of a show to assume that the audience is going to keep score and that you can just tell the story. So you can find Babylon 5's fingerprints in Buffy, Battlestar Galactica, modern Doctor Who, I think, is very influenced by Babylon 5. Lost, The Expanse, Game of Thrones, modern Star Trek. I thought that the start of the Klingon War at the beginning of Star Trek Discovery uh, reminded me a lot of the death of Dukat and the start of the Earth-Mimbari War in Babylon 5 in the beginning. Babylon 5 was the show that said genre television could be as complex as as genre literature had gotten to be. <clears throat> if you're not going to swap out Babylon 5 for Lost in Space as one of the three foundational pillars of American sci-fi television, then let's make a strong argument for a second set of three pillars. Babylon 5, Buffy, and Battlestar Galactica. The three Bs, in that order. I've already told you what Babylon 5 accomplished. Buffy and Battlestar came later and benefited from Babylon 5 kicking those doors open. Buffy had huge cultural relevance. 
Now, with all of the stuff that's come out about Joss Whedon since Buffy started and ended, you know, this is we're talking about stuff that's come out in the past year that's makes him look like a very unsavory character. But here's the thing, I do have some contact with people who worked on that show who have assured me it's true. The stories we are hearing are true. So I hesitate to say that Buffy really ushered in you know, proper second wave feminism, but it did kind of bring this kind of Spice Girls era girl power thing to TV that made properly feminist shows that came later, say like Supergirl, made it easier for those shows to exist and to get a foothold. Battlestar reminded us that like Star Trek, sci-fi can tackle serious issues, and Battlestar really went to town with a lot of issues that were very much on our minds just a few years after 9-11. But because it involved spaceships and toasters, you could say these things easier than you could say them about people. And, you know, perhaps make people realize that saying these things about people who happen to be of a different nationality, a different religion, a different skin color, what have you, was just as silly as saying them about robots. Babylon 5, for me, however, was the perfect mix of serious and fun. I, I think Buffy also got a lot of that ratio right. Battlestar didn't. Battlestar got to be a death march. Uh, there, there was a point in season four of Battlestar where I had to walk away from the show and not watch it for a while and come back to it later for mental health reasons because you had characters just offing themselves out of the blue and I was not I I was having a rough time in my life and I did not need that in my headspace um, Babylon 5 was always fun to watch there was always at least one big belly laugh per episode and it never got to be a total drag, whereas I, I think Battlestar kind of suffered from 9-11 Hangover, which I, I think a lot of American television has suffered from that. See also grim, gritty, realistic, desaturated remakes of every goddamn thing in the media universe. There will never be a show quite like Battlestar Galactica again. The closest anyone has come to striking that same balance in this century, in my opinion, was the Russell T. Davies era of Doctor Who, which seemed so much like Babylon 5, not just in budget, but also the fact that you had this... you had these breadcrumbs that were adding up to something, and you didn't know what until you got to the season finale. That The Davies era of Doctor Who reminds me hugely of Babylon 5 at its peak. So, there's the story of the Binder of Babylon, but really it's the story of how much that one show has meant to me and continues to mean to me. I look up random episodes on HBO Max. It looks fantastic. If you have not watched Babylon 5, there has never been a better time Literally, put this on pause and just go watch it.
Okay, if you've already watched Babylon 5 and you just let the show keep going, welcome to the goodies and merchandise section of the show. For those of you who put me on pause and watched Babylon 5, welcome back. I hope you have had a wonderful five years. And welcome to the goodies and merchandise part of the show that's always a feature of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. What may be my favorite retro action figure Kickstarter since The Legends of Cthulhu has gone live? And I suppose you're thinking, really? I need information. By hook or by crook, my friends, you are going to get it. Wandering Planet has launched a Kickstarter for a line of officially licensed action figures based on the 1960s cult TV classic, The Prisoner. Yes, the one with Patrick McGowan running from the giant water balloon. You can now get McGowan in action figure form. Actually, if you back the project at a high enough level, you can have yourself a multi-McGowan situation going on, which, you know, is actually a feature that's baked into the show itself. There will be four individually carded figures of number six in various episode-specific outfits, and a couple of two-packs, very nice, nicely boxed sets here, these two-packs, pairing other costume variants of number six with other characters, such as number two. This Kickstarter runs to the end of May, and I had to do some super squishing in my budget to come up with the cash to back this thing at the maximum level, because I love the prisoner, and I want every one of these things, especially the number six figure that comes packaged inside Rover, the, the aforementioned balloon. Now, how cool is that? I will include a link to this Kickstarter in the show notes so you can join me and get your own multi-McGuin situation going on. It's a glorious thing. The figures are set to be shipped out to backers in March of next year. And you know, I am down for getting myself a present for surviving 2020 and 2021 and receiving it next spring. So, um, and by the way, the show, uh, the show, the Kickstarter has exceeded the budget that was stated for it by by several multiples. So, yes, this is going to happen. We finally get action figures of the prisoner. Hey, Wandering Planet, Wandering Planet, listen, listen up, guys. What would you think about an action figure series based on Babylon 5? Be seeing you. Now... Uh, slightly more mainstream action figure news, Hasbro is finally bringing the Marvel Legends 3 and 3 quarter inch retro figures to retail. Now, I raved about the preview wave of six figures that was made available online in 2020. And they are still among some of my favorite new arrivals on my action figure wall. The first retail wave, however, is mostly different characters. Uh, Spider-Man and Captain America are both part of the first wave, as they were in the preview wave, but the rest of the first retail wave is new. You have the Incredible Hulk, the Human Torch from Fantastic Four, so Torchy gets a figure, Magneto from X-Men, and Carol Danvers. And as with the preview wave, these figures are based off of these characters' appearances in comics from the late 70s and early 80s, and they have gorgeous artwork on the backing cards to match. So this is not Carol Danvers from the Captain Marvel movie. This is not Ian McKellen as Magneto. This is Magneto with a big purple cape and that big helmet, as he always wore in the comics. Which, you know, once you get these characters into movie form, there is a tendency 
<laughs> on the part of many Hollywood costume designers to kind of uh, bring the colorfulness of a costume that was designed for a comic book character down just a little bit. Not so here, my friends. These characters, they look the way that I first met these characters in comic books as a kid in the late 70s and early 80s. So this is the short, chunky 70s comics Hulk, which I love. These are really aimed squarely at nerds my age because, you know, if if you're about my age, again, if you got into comics in the late 70s and early 80s, this is how your friends look when you first met their acquaintance. And it would have been super cool to have these when I was seven. But hey, you know me, I'm not picky. I will happily take them now. Here's the really cool part. You can already pre-order these in the logbook.com store. There's a link to them in the show notes at thelogbook.com slash this tape for this episode of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. I definitely really dig these. If you order these through our Amazon links, by the way, it does help the site survive, basically. Now, I'm guessing that some of the characters who were in the preview wave will probably be peppered throughout future retail waves. So if you missed Iron Man or Black Panther or Cyclops or Electro, don't freak out. There is no way that they are going to leave characters that major sequestered in a preview wave. I would lay money on Iron Man and Black Panther appearing in Wave 2, Cyclops and Electro in Wave 3 maybe in different packaging so that the preview wave you know, has a different value to it for the collectors who picked it up. They're not going to wall off those extremely popular characters in an online-only preview wave. Now, you know who I can't wait to see? You know whose figure I want? Lockjaw from the Inhumans. If you're not familiar with Marvel lore, Lockjaw is a giant bulldog. A giant teleporting bulldog. Now, I found this out. Did you know that if you Google giant teleporting bulldog, Lockjaw immediately comes up as the number one result because there is only one giant teleporting bulldog in the world, and that is Lockjaw. That's the Marvel retro figure I really want. <laughs> At the end of this line, when, when I have a Lockjaw that is scaled to uh, sit alongside the Hulk and the Torch from this first retail wave, I will be a very happy little kid. Hasbro is also adding Jackson, Jackson the Rabbit, to the Star Wars Black Series. Now, he's part of a Black Series wave with other more recent comics-derived characters, but I hope this means that the crazy old Jedi Knight, who turns out to be crazy and old, but definitely not a Jedi Knight, Don Juan Quixote, will be close behind, along with Ameza and Effie and the Starkiller Kid and Hedgie, who was kind of a large biped Porcupine. I love this gang of characters. They originated from the Marvel Star Wars comics that came out after the movie adaptation. Right after that first movie, there was no franchise to speak of. There were no rules. There was a sequel being mentioned as a thing that would probably happen. But, hey, we didn't even have a title yet. People were thinking, oh, oh, yeah, I I'm going to wait to see that Star Wars episode, too. <laughs> Yeah, it got a little complicated there, didn't it? Anyway, these characters would sometimes hang out with Han and Chewie, and sometimes they would strike out on their own and cross paths with Han and Chewie later in those Marvel Star Wars comics. And that was great. I mean, you had crazy-ass space pirates and stuff that 
really aligned more closely with Flash Gordon than with Star Wars as we know it now. But it was so much fun. If you were a kid back then, those comics and these characters were so much fun. So Jackson better be just the tip of the iceberg or, you know, maybe the tip of the bunny ear before we see the rest of the rabbit. My big regret, though, is that he's not three and three-quarter inch. And the Black Series figures are all six inches, highly articulated, highly detailed. And really, I've avoided the Black Series other than the Porgs and Grogu, Baby Yoda, the child, because they're asking me to change scale at a point when I have hundreds of Star Wars figures in that original three and three-quarter inch Kenner scale. If you know me and you know my previous rants about action figure collecting, I don't do scale changes. When Star Trek First Contact, um, the Playmates action figure line from that movie, suddenly took us from four-inch figures to six-inch figures, I was done. Um, When character options... After years of doing the five and a half to six inch Doctor Who figure line, tried to reverse that and go three and three quarter inch. I did not follow because I had way too many of the larger Doctor Who figures. I'm no, no, just no. So this may be a bit of a minor tipping point for me, but I am not going whole hog black series. It would be fun just to have this particular group of these particular characters from the comics. And, of course, you know, I can see getting a Han and Chewie after that since they hung out with these guys. But just them. Nothing more. You know me. Super 7 has unexpectedly added more Back to the Future reaction figures. You have Marty McFly with a skateboard, Marty McFly in the hazmat suit. You have Doc Brown in his radiation suit from the beginning of the movie. And you have 50s Doc with his mind-weeding device. It's a it's a hat that you can put on the figure or remove. Um, I would love to see a DeLorean to go with these guys. I think I've mentioned this before. I have a Kenner Death Star playset, but it is missing the trash compactor. And so what I use the... Basically, the basement floor of the Death Star is. That's where I park all the vehicles. So that's where the Batmobile and the Land Speeder and the Imperial Troop Transport and the light cycles from Tron hang out. It's like a parking garage. You know, I'll... I'll put the figure of Cthulhu down there with, uh, you know, with the cheat commandos as as valets for everyone parking at the Death Star. I, w- I would love to have a DeLorean down there, but I'm not holding my breath because the likeness of the DeLorean probably costs more than the likenesses of Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Now, we are also getting more reaction figures from Super 7, and these have been teased for a long time, but we have finally seen them. Star Trek The Next Generation is back as a three and three-quarter inch action figure range. And they look really cool. I mean, they're kind of in that same Kenner-inspired vibe where they're not too detailed. You don't have too many specific facial expressions or poses or anything like that. You know, they have the five points of articulation. They come with weapons, if those characters had weapons. And your imagination fills in the blanks, which was the beauty, really, of the Kenner figures. The first wave of Star Trek The Next Generation, and they've already said there will there will be more than one wave, consists of Captain Picard, Worf, and Data in their uniforms from Season 3 onward. So you have the tall colors. So this is not the... 
This is not the collarless spandex uniforms from seasons one and two. However, you have Wesley Crusher in that multicolored outfit from season one. Okay, interesting choice. You have Guinan with her big purple hat. Okay, and you have a you have one enemy, you have a Borg. Now the great thing about this is there was already a failed series of three and three quarter inch Star Trek The Next Generation figures that came out alongside the premiere of the show. These were made by Galoob, and Galoob had the toy license back in 1987-88, and that line, after one wave, went precisely nowhere. Here's why that's a good thing. One of the things that came out of that Galoob line was a really terrific little shuttlecraft that was scaled to three and three-quarter inch figures. Well, I hope if you have that Galoob shuttlecraft, you have hung on to it all these years like I have, because we have, uh, you know, we have new crew members ready to sit in it and fly it around. Super 7 is taking pre-orders for these figures they will be shipping in July, just like Jackson. By the way, um, my birthday's in July, so y'all kind of know what to get me there. Just kidding, just kidding. So one last thought as we sign off this latest Don't Give This Tape to Earl podcast because my tape is about to run out. We've had a full casting announcement about the Disney Plus Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries. I'm really excited to see Indira Varma from Torchwood and uh, Kumail Nanjiani. I enjoy their work quite a bit. It's interesting also to see Joel Edgerton, who was Owen Lars in the prequels. Presumably he will be playing... Older Owen, older than the prequels, but not as old as we see him in A New Hope, Owen. Um, I'm presuming Joel Edgerton will be playing that role again here. Here is the casting announcement that really has me jazzed, really has me excited. Hayden Christensen. I think Hayden took a lot of crap for how he played Anakin, although I really think the places where he fell flat as Anakin was due to the fact that he was working as a director who was focusing more on effects than on the human side of the story. We're talking about a director who is infamous for his direction to actors being, do it faster, more intense. Okay, but what's my faster, more intense motivation? So what on earth is Hayden doing in a series that presumably follows Obi-Wan through his period of exile on Tatooine? Here's what I would do. And bear in mind, this is this is pure conjecture, pure speculation. I am playing showrunner the home game here. I would have Hayden there to play the ghost of Anakin Skywalker, wisest and noblest of the surviving Jedi Knights, an Anakin who didn't turn to the dark side and become Darth Vader. This Anakin lives only in Obi-Wan's head. Obi-Wan... You remember at the end of Episode 3, Yoda tells him that he's going to teach Obi-Wan how to commune with the Jedi who have become one with the Force before him. So the promise there is that Obi-Wan will get to commune with the spirit of Qui-Gon Jinn. Which is, you know, that's, that's the explicit promise. But what if it doesn't really go the way he wants it to? What if he has a hard time learning this ability? And all he ever gets 
is Anakin Skywalker. Now, this Anakin is somewhat aggrieved that he doesn't actually exist. He should be raising his kids with Padme, he should be using his influence as a Jedi Master to change the parts of the Jedi Code that forced him to live a lie, a well-intentioned lie, for so long. An Anakin Skywalker who knows that a Jedi could draw strength from having emotional attachments, rather than regarding any such attachments as an exploitable weakness, as per the Jedi Code as we know it. This Anakin would just follow Obi-Wan around wherever he goes, lamenting the fact that his former master let him down. And sometimes Obi-Wan is so eaten up with guilt that he talks back to this ghost that no one else can see. The ghost tormenting him for all of his mistakes. And this is why when we first meet Owen Lars in the first Star Wars movie, Old Owen, Uncle Owen, he says Kenobi is a crazy old hermit. Why would you think someone is crazy? Maybe if they're having these constant conversations with someone only they can see? And we know Anakin's Force Ghost is out there somewhere. Whether you prefer the original cut of Return of the Jedi with the Sebastian Shaw Force Ghost, or the special edition with Hayden as Anakin's Force Ghost, we already know he exists. And maybe that Force Ghost didn't have to wait for Vader to die to be a thing. Maybe it's literally the part of Anakin that died when he became Vader. Because you know, we know that Anakin is really that powerful with the Force. So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. Let's lean into Obi-Wan, the crazy old hermit. Let's find out why he was regarded as crazy. That's what I would do anyway. That would track well with where we meet Obi-Wan, as, you know, in the form of Alec Guinness. He's off on one last mission, but really, he's almost too ready to die on that mission. Because that would make this persistent voice in his head stop. Now, I realize that for Star Wars, <laughs> that is some really dark s***. But the more I think about the possibilities, the more I like it. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. 2021 is here. You know that, don't you? I mean, we're like five months into it. I know we're kind of all still in, you know, pandemic, living under a rock shell shock here, but just in case you didn't know, it's 2021. And you, my friend, can join the ranks of the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Even if you can only pick in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You could be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You get show notes and occasional outtakes and other fun stuff. If ongoing pledges of support aren't your thing, pour us a coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash the logbook and make a one-time donation. That's actually a thing that has happened now. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, and even non-medical grade face masks and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Lower Decks, or, you know, all the other Star Trek series and anything else on Paramount+, Plus, 
you can sign up for a free week through the links on our site. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook. And don't give this tape to Earl a lot. You know what else you can sign up for? You can sign up for the subscription version of Hulu now. And uh, Season 3 of The Orville, do I need to say anything more than that? Surely not. Don't give this tape to Earl as a production of thelogbook.com. I have been um, going through stuff I already own. I have been on a Susie and the Banshee kicks lately. <laughs> Nominal. Oh.